We've certainly heard the phrase, you are what you eat, right? You know, I know, we eat a bunch of junk food. We just kind of process calories, and we are eating things or food that's laden with fat. Uh, we know the outcome of that. We know that it's going to affect us physically, and it'll affect you psychologically. There is a movie called Supersize It, which just shows you the effects of just eating McDonald's food every single meal, and lo and behold, you will be literally transformed in some very negative ways, right? The same could be true that if you eat healthy food, food that is good for your body, you combine that with a little exercise, proper rest, and a little bit of uh, stress management, and you can actually live a very healthy life. You are what you eat. We understand that physically, but it's also true when it comes to wisdom. See, there is the wisdom that God offers people, and there is also the wisdom of the world. And depending upon the type of wisdom that you are abiding by determines the kind of life that you live. You could say it this way. The wisdom that we follow is shown by the way that we live. And when it comes to God's wisdom, he refers to it, James says here in James 3, as the wisdom from above. It's heavenly. It's from God himself. The wisdom from above is always intended to be manifested in our lives. When we speak of God's wisdom, it's not that you just know it. It's not like you've got head knowledge or you've got, you know, 12 Bibles and they can match all your different outfits. And just because you've heard 5,320 sermons or you've got a bunch of Bibles or you wear a cross around your neck, that doesn't mean that you have wisdom. Wisdom, God's wisdom, is always intended to be manifested. It's kind of like this. Let's say you were, hopefully this doesn't happen, but you were suddenly accosted and some guy yanked your back, uh, your arm behind your back, and has gotten you in a position of submission. It's not enough for you to say, hey, I know karate, or, you know, I asked to have a kung fu lunchbox when I was a kid, which, by the way, that is my childhood lunchbox right there. And I looked it up on eBay. It's worth over $220 right now. I stopped using it after college, but I really regret that I got rid of that thing because that thing is worth money, man. Look at those guys. God, they're bad dudes, right? It's not enough to tell the person that's kind of got you in a position of submission, hey, I know karate or I've got a kung fu lunchbox. Do you have what it takes to get you out of that situation? That's whether or not you really know karate. The same could be said of wisdom. It's not enough to say, hey, I know wisdom, or I've got God's wisdom. God's wisdom is meant to be manifested. It's kind of like the state motto of the state of Missouri. Anybody know what the state motto is for the state of Missouri? That's right. It's the show me state. Yeah, you can run off with a mouth, and you've got a lot of rhetoric about what you say, but can you show me? When you come to the book of James, and that's the book we've been studying, it's all about can your faith be manifested? Because true faith in Christ, in the beloved Lord Jesus Christ, as we refer to our glorious Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 2, verse 1, is always manifested in a person's life. It's not faith without works. It is a faith that actually is outworked in a person's life. The same can be true, be said of true of wisdom. God's wisdom is meant to be expressed. And so he says in chapter 3, verse 13, he says... Who among you is wise in understanding? Let him show by his good behavior 
his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. If you have God's wisdom, he says, let it be shown by your behavior and your understanding. You see, this word understanding has the idea of someone who is skillful in applying his trade. Whether you be like a doctor or a tradesman, like a carpenter. One who has understanding can actually do things. They're not just talking about like, man, I can make some awesome furniture and I know what to do with all my tools. No, they actually can do it and they can demonstrate it. And that's when it comes to wisdom. That's what he's saying here. If you really have God's wisdom and real understanding, it's going to be shown forth in your good behavior, in deeds, in the gentleness of wisdom. And that word gentle is a word that would be used to describe horses, wild horses, that had now been brought under control. We, can, we call them horses that have been broke. I don't know if you've ever seen wild horses or horses that haven't been trained, but they're extremely powerful. Don't get the idea that if you see a wild horse, like, oh, what a beautiful horse. I'm just going to jump on it, and we're going to just kind of fly through the fields. No, that horse is going to kick you to death, okay? They are powerful, and they are strong. They don't trust you, and they are wild. But wild horses can be brought under control, and then what we're talking, they can be significant power under control. That's the idea behind the word gentle. We've been broken, broken by life. Broken by sin, we are now trusting in Christ and we're yielding our life to God. We're not living in our own strength and by the world's wisdom. We're now living by God's strength and applying God's wisdom to our lives. It is power under control. It is demonstrating through our good behavior the gentleness of wisdom. And so what James is going to do is he's going to contrast the wisdom of the world in contrast to the wisdom of God. And you might be far more familiar with the wisdom of the world. And so he describes it. He starts going, beginning in verse 14, he starts to describe what is the wisdom of the world. And first of all, it compels our flesh. So let's just take a look at it and we'll kind of uh, walk through this passage. He says, verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Let's talk a little bit about the wisdom of the world. Let's go back to verse 14. First of all, it compels our flesh. Okay, do you see that? There's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It is the wisdom of the world is appeals to your fleshly fallen nature. And it compels us to like bitter jealousy. Uh, this has the idea when you're when you're jealous, you're you're demonstrating a harsh uh, judgment, an envy to someone else and what the, or something that someone else has. And when they put the words together, this word bitter in it would be kind of used of like water that was like bitter and you'd spit it out. It speaks of kind of a harsh, resentful attitude toward others. And all of us are fully capable of bitterness. The wisdom of the world focuses us on a compelling our flesh to seek its own desires. It's met by our flesh. And one of the ways it's manifested is bitterness. 
One guy said that bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. That's what bitterness is. We think by cultivating, twisting things in our heart, where we cultivate a bitter attitude toward an individual, that somehow you're inflicting some sort of damage on that individual. No, you're not. The one you're really painting and distorting is yourself. And it's all part of the wisdom of the world. And it's, it compels our flesh. It's selfish ambition. You see that, what he says? There's bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This presents anyone or anything that comes in between what you want. And not only does it compel our flesh, but notice what he says. This is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant, so lie against the truth. You see, the wisdom of the world contradicts the truth. It's earthly. Notice what he starts describing it in verse 15. That wisdom is not from above, is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly. Has the idea that it's of the world. It's the humanistic worldview that caters to self-centeredness that proposes that life is lived apart from God. And so that's what it does. And it kind of purports, it kind of goes forward by with ideas like this. Like, do your own thing. Have it your way. Look out for number one. It's the wisdom of the world. It's reinforced time and time again by the society in which we live. It, in all of our media. It's pumped through our TVs. We see it. We're so accustomed to it that we hardly even identify it. But it's the wisdom of the world. It's earthly. It's of the world. And notice what else he says. It is not only earthly, verse 15, but it's natural. It's of the flesh. Have you noticed, if you're a parent, especially a new parent, you don't have to teach your kid how to lie or to disobey. They just do it, right? You know, like they understand no, and you say, hey, no, don't play in the street. And they're like, no. And they're going to do their own thing. And you're like, where did they learn how to do that? Or it's shocking. Parents are like, how did my kid learn how to lie? How did they do that? I didn't teach them that. Did you teach them that? No. Where did they learn this? It's actually innate. It's part of their fallen nature. You don't have to teach people how to lie. They do it naturally. And the wisdom of the world appeals to our fallen flesh. It's like, sure, it encourages indulgence. Any appetite for sin, whether it be greed or rage or sexual immorality or drunkenness, whatever it might be, the wisdom of the world appeals to our fleshly nature to engage and to indulge. That there's no consequence. There's no problem. And that's how it functions. And then, I, want, I don't want you to miss this. It's not only earthly, verse 15, it's not only natural, it is also demonic. The wisdom of the world is actually sourced in Satan himself. You see, Satan always tempts. He wants you to live life without the consideration of God or of his word. If he can, he wants you to never consider consequences for your actions. In fact, it seems like the bigger the sin, the more he wants you to just focus on the here and now, what, what you can get or what you want right now. It's the wisdom of the world, and it's demonic. And if you want to see what this looks like, friends, this is, this is how we live. Before you and I truly trusted Christ, we lived in this worldly, earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. 
Remember what it says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Before you and I were believers in Christ and trusting him, that's all we did. Our lives simply absorbed the wisdom of the world. We're trying to make sense of life. We see life only on a horizontal level, and we buy into it, and it appeals to our flesh. And I want you to know there's an outworking of this. When you and I live by the wisdom of the world, there are outcomes. And you see it right there in verse 16. For where, there, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. It's anything from anger to bitterness, resentment, lawsuits, divorce, racial, ethnic, social divides, the absence of love, enemy, trust, friendships, guess what? It all goes away. Doesn't verse 16 describe our cities today and our country and our world? It's disorder and every evil thing. And you're like, what's going on? What's going on is this. We're simply abiding by the wisdom of the world. And we're living it, and its implications are jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil thing. And I'll tell you, it's not only in the world. Friends, the wisdom of the world always tries to take root in the life of a church. You see, when the wisdom of the world starts spreading seeds and starts sprouting in a church, I'll tell you what happens. This, the whole idea of spiritual revival or growth or and holiness or the gospel going forth or Jesus Christ is the focus of our faith or the power and the inerrancy and the integrity of God's word, guess what? That all starts going away because the wisdom of the world is starting to take root in a church. And I can tell you that all the conflicts and crimes and battles and the wars of this world, I can assure you that made sense to someone or a lot of people. But the result is defeat and discouragement. It is, verse 16, jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil thing. So, where did the wisdom of the world even come from? I mean, why is it here, and why is it so prevalent? Well, you don't have to read your Bible too far until you actually encounter the entrance of the wisdom of the world. All you have to do is go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you have God who created all things. He's created people. It is lovely. It is beautiful. You have Adam and Eve. They're in the Garden of Eden. They've been given work to do, meaningful work. They are obeying God. They are actually cultivating the land. They are naming the animals. They are living in this perfect love relationship with God. They're exercising obedience. They are following God. God actually said, listen, I want you to enjoy. You can take part in anything that you see. Just stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, because if you ever eat from that fruit, you die. And so they're enjoying life, and they're experiencing just true intimacy with the Lord, just as God intended. But of course, in Genesis chapter 3, you have Satan, who takes kind of the form of a serpent. And he sees all the beauty, but he is, in, he is against God. He himself wanted to be God. And so what he does is he takes and cries corrupt all the good that God has. Even the goodness among the people. 
And so we find it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, the devil, taking the form of a serpent, was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden? Did God really say that you weren't supposed to eat from this tree in the garden? And I'll tell you, this woman is smart. She understands. She's got integrity. She has convictions. She knows the truth. She knows what God has said. And listen to what she said in Genesis 3, 2. But the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. We perfectly understand what God said. We're obeying, and we're following. But you know, Satan doesn't give up so easy, does he? Look at the next verse, verse 4, you know. The serpent said to the woman, <laughs> Wait a second. You surely will not die. Did God say that? <sighs> Just like God to hold out on you. And he says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Wouldn't you like to be like God? You see, God's holding out on you. God knows that when you eat this fruit, you're going to be like him. You're going to know good and evil. Wouldn't that be attractive and appealing to be like God? And he just starts fixating on this fruit and listening to the words of Satan. And it says in the very next verse, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, not the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of the world, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. You see, the wisdom of the world, it, it appeals to the lust of the flesh and the lustful of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. And she goes, I would like to have that kind of wisdom. God's holding out on me. His wisdom's not enough. I want the wisdom of the world. And she took and she ate, and Adam's with her, and he doesn't even argue. He does the same things and plunges humanity into depravity, into God's justice. Friends, that's where the wisdom of the world has its origins. And it's widespread and so very destructive. And I will tell you this. If you are drinking the world's Kool-Aid, don't be surprised that you actually adopt and actually manifest the destructive characteristics of the wisdom of the world and its values. I might do this to pause right now. Just take a stop. I want you to think of the choices that you have made that have inflicted great pain on your life and the lives of others. You don't have to share it with your neighbor. But I can assure you, all of us have made decisions and choices that have created great problems, great brokenness, real hurt in our lives. Maybe it was that fight or that ongoing fight that you've had. Or maybe you're in one right now. Or maybe that place that you should have not gone to. Or that relationship that you should have fled. But you're like, oh no, you knew better. Or maybe it was a habit that you should have resisted. I want you to think about some of the choices that you've made 
that have led to great problems for you. Do you not see that you are following the wisdom of the world in those moments? He's followed the wisdom of the world, verse 16, jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, every evil thing. It cropped up. Why? Because you, you actually abided in the wisdom of the world. And you didn't even think of all the consequences of your action. You see, the, by you and I actually living in, following the wisdom of the world, it shows us our need for Christ. It reemphasizes the need for the gospel because you know why? We are sinners. We are drawn to evil. We want the wisdom of the world. It appeals to our flesh. We need a savior. We not only have consequences for sin, that's why we need forgiveness. We need life. We need hope. And we need the wisdom of God. And friends, it's all found in Jesus. You see, that's the wisdom of the world. But God in Christ offers us something very different, something far better. It's the wisdom of God. And I want you to see see what it is. For me, in my Bible, I literally turn the page and I come to verse 17. And it's not just the turning of the page. Really, when you and I start trusting in Christ and following the wisdom of God, it's the turning and the changing and the transforming of the life. Notice the wisdom of God, verse 17. But the wisdom from above. And he goes on to explain it. It's above, is first pure and then peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. You see, the wisdom from above, the wisdom of God, it's manifested by God's Son. You want to see wisdom? You just fix your eyes on Jesus. Look at the gospel accounts. It is manifested in God's Son. It is available through God's Holy Spirit. And it is recorded in God's Word. It's the wisdom from above. And when we follow it, what happens is God cultivates holiness in our life. Godliness. And that's what verse 17 describes. He describes how the wisdom of God appeals to the Spirit of God that is placed in our life. When you and I believe in Christ, at the very moment we trust in Him, the Spirit of God comes into our life, and the Spirit of God yearns for, desires the wisdom of God. It revolts, it recoils, it doesn't want the wisdom of the world because now you're a new creature in Christ. And the Spirit of God yearns for the wisdom of God to be manifest in your life. He'll actually empower it to become a reality. He wants you to grow up and to mature. And so he describes, what does that look like? And he goes, first of all, it's pure. You see that? It's not contaminated. It's not defiled. It is peaceable. It has the idea that you love peace and you promote it. It's not just the absence of war, but it's the experience of being Christ-centered, to have gravitas in your life because you know God. You're not just being kicked around here and there, but you're a peaceable person. And you are gentle. That means that you're not running around causing fights. But it also means that you do not compromise just to kind of keep the peace. Uh, Carl Sandburg, in his biography, won a Pulitzer uh, Prize for his biography on Lincoln. And he described Lincoln as a man of velvet steel. Velvet steel. A man of deep conviction, strong, iron, like steel, unbending, not compromising, moving forward, and yet at the same time, velvet. There was a softness about his life. He was gentle. That's the kind of gentleness he's talking about here. 
It is gentle. It's God's wisdom being applied to your life. It gives you fortitude and character, integrity and depth. And yet, it comes across as soft and sweet, strong and powerful. And notice what else you see with the wisdom of God. It makes you willing to yield, reasonable, have the idea that you're teachable, you're compliant, you're not stubborn because God's wisdom is appealing for you to grow, that you're reasonable, that you're full of mercy. It has the idea that you actually start caring for others. You see, the wisdom of the world appeals to your self-centeredness, where you always are just thinking about you and how will this affect me and what will I look like and it's all about me. Well, the wisdom of God, through Christ, all of a sudden we start thinking about others, how they might be doing, and we're caring about their growth and their development. We also are caring about their problems. We're merciful. When we see people suffering and pain and hardship, we actually are concerned because we're now starting to abide by the wisdom of God. And we're full of mercy, but also, he says, and good fruits. The Spirit of God is being manifest in your life. Love, joy, peace, and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and don't forget this one, self-control. It's the fruit of righteousness. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's being manifested in our lives. And we become, like he says, unwavering. We are without partiality. We don't make unfair distinctions. And furthermore, he says, it is without Hypocrisy. Uh, the Greek word hypocrite um, meant actor. Now, obviously, hypocrite has a major ne negative connotation today. But a hypocrite is like, just like we'd say that, hey, they're an actor. And hypocrites, actors, what they would do when they were acting out in the amphitheater or they were having their play, they would put on these masks, and they have these masks in front of them. And those masks kind of uh, pictured, like, were they angry or sad, kind of gave you insight into character, were they kind of an evil person or just a bubbly, joyful person? It was all conveyed by the mask. And they would act out these plays. And they were called hypocrites. Now, of course, everybody knew, if you're sitting in the amphitheater 2,000 years ago, you know that they're just playing a play. I mean, they've just got the mask on. It's kind of like actors today. You need to understand, for some of you, this is going to be like a reality moment, that what you see on TV, that's just all pretend and fake. They're, they're acting that way. You know, I don't know if you've had this experience, like you see maybe somebody that you've watched on the show, and, they, and they're like really eloquent and super intelligent, and they just make good calls, and they're like, man, that is awesome. But then you might see them being interviewed, and you're like so disappointed. They don't make any sense. They say really bad things or crazy things. You're like, I like you far better in the show. That's how I want to think of you. I really don't like you in real life. And you're not very good. You're bad. You're evil. You're, you're certainly not as eloquent and sharp as you come off when I see you on the show. You need to understand they're just acting. But when it comes to God and his people, he doesn't want you and me to be hypocrites. Actors. What you see is what you get. We're not chameleons where we just kind of match the environment. Like, for instance, we're at school. Man, we're going to ask act real worldly and act as if God doesn't exist. But on the other hand, when we show up to youth group or at church or we're at Bible study or in our life group, oh, yes, we're all very saintly and holy, okay? We all fit in. We know the right answers. I'm going to pray for you, sister, right? 
But then, of course, we get us with our party friends, and we're wild and crazy. We'll do things that we would never even consider in some of our more quote-unquote spiritual settings. God wants integrity, and the wisdom of God brings it about. It's the fruit that comes. It's unwavering. It's without hypocrisy. It's God in control of our lives. And so he says in verse 18, And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see, this wisdom that is from above, he's kind of picturing it like seed, and that seed grows, and there's a plant, and from that plant comes all these other seeds. Some of that seed falls back in the ground, and the process continues. More and more seed is produced. That's how wisdom works. It grows, it's manifested, it's consumed, it's utilized, but it flows into the lives of others, and it just keeps spreading. That's just the wisdom of God. And it's sown in righteous, it's sown in peace by those who make peace. It's attractive, it's desirable, it can become contagious. I've been thinking just about my life. Just kind of taking some stock in some different areas. I desperately need God's wisdom. For instance, I want to know how to love my wife well. One of the ways I try to love my wife well is, what is it that makes her thrive? How can I try to make that possible for her? I need wisdom in parenting. I got four kids, all different stages, and they're trying to navigate this world in which we live. And it's tricky and difficult, and there's all sorts of ways that you can really get messed up badly. I, I need God's wisdom to help me. I need wisdom just in my personal well-being and the condition of my soul. I need wisdom to lead well as a pastor. We've got great opportunities, and we face challenges and struggles. I need wisdom to lead well. I need, I need wisdom to teach, whether it be kind of one-on-one in a discipleship relationship, or in a small group, working with Baylor students, or in a large group setting like this, or with seminary students. I'm not going to be able to just kind of go on my own, make it up as I get through the day. No, I need wisdom from God desperately. And counseling. There are people that are hoping that I know something about this book and how it might apply to their life and their crisis or difficulty they're in. <laughs> Where am I going to get that? I, I need wisdom from God. I need wisdom on how to handle our family's finances. And I've come to the conclusion... I can't really afford to not be seeking God's wisdom because there is far too much at stake. And I'd imagine that you would say the same thing. I mean, when you consider your life and your ministry, your family, your career, your retirement, the decisions and challenges that you face, whether you should get married, how you should handle this situation, do you feel comfortable going on your own and just keep floating around with the wisdom of the world or do you not need the wisdom from above, the wisdom that comes from God? Friends, we desperately need God's wisdom. Origin determines outcome. The origin of our wisdom is going to determine the outcomes of our life. And so we need Jesus Christ. We cannot function well apart from him. We can't have forgiveness. We can't have eternal life. Certainly not abundant life apart from knowing Jesus. That's why Jesus made it perfectly clear, you need me. I am everything you are not. I am holy, righteous, perfect. 
I will come, I'll pay the penalty for your sin, I will live a righteous life, and I will rise again, and I will give you my life. You trust in me. Remember when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he gave that contracting seminar at the end? And he said this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. You build your house on me and my words, the wisdom of God is going to be personified in you. You're going to manifest it. It's interesting, in Colossians chapter uh, 2, in verses like the end of verse 2 and verse 3, speaking of Christ, it says this, of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you need wisdom? Do you need knowledge? It's found in knowing Christ. And it's through him that he will give you what you need. Yeah, you're going to have to learn and apply yourself, but God will give you the wisdom, and he's able because of our relationship with Christ. But I will tell you this, that wisdom available does not mean wisdom is applied. Wisdom available does not mean that wisdom is applied. So let me just tell you very practical ways. How do you walk in the wisdom from above? First of all, you want to long for wisdom. You want to crave it. Like, you've got to want it badly. You can't be passive when it comes to the pursuit of wisdom. Like, I just kind of hope it happens when I drive by the church or I kind of show up here. No, you've got to want it, desire it. If you, if you want to look at what like, wisdom looks like, you just go to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is like wisdom distilled. It is just pure wisdom. And then Proverbs, like chapter 16, verse 16, it says, How much better it is to get wisdom than gold, and get understanding is to be chosen above silver. you got to desire it, and you want it. Let me give you another practical step. How do you walk in the wisdom of God? You need to ask the Lord. Do you remember when we started the book of James, James chapter 1, verse 5? It says this, But if any of you lacks wisdom, that's me, if you lack wisdom, what do you do? He says, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. You ask God, God will give you wisdom, but you're going to want it. You've got to ask him. You've got to be engaged. You ask the Lord. Ask the Lord, Lord, what does maturity in Christ look like in this situation or this relationship? What would that look like? Your word applied, the principles of truth applied to this situation. And then, Lord, would you give me the grace, desire, and strength to do this? I can't, but you can. God, shape me, mold me, empower me, strengthen me, give me the desire. Would you do it? Let me give you a third just practical way of how do you walk in the wisdom of God. Walk with the wise. In so many ways, we are the result of the company that we keep. So what you want to do is you want to find a few friends who are actually growing and manifesting the wisdom of God. I will tell you, friends, these are great relationships. These are relationships that have depth, purpose, significance, integrity. I mean, these are real relationships, not just superficial things built on superficial deals that are going on in our world, like watching just a game, but real relationships where you can talk about the deep matters of the heart. Like Proverbs 27, 17 says... Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That's what wisdom and good friends do. It keeps you sharpening you. It causes you to think deeply. prevents you from making some pretty bad mistakes. And then finally, if you want to walk 
and the wisdom from above, you want to demonstrate it. You see, discipleship always involves demonstration. It's not when you're, when you're working with people, whether just a, another person or maybe you're with our kids or in some sort of small group. It's not just imparting knowledge, but what you're doing is you're instructing by example. You will find that people learn far more by how you behave than just some of the things that you say. They'll remember some of it, but they really will remember how you live. That's what God intends, that you and I live out wisdom. And so, that's what God is asking us to do. You've come from the wisdom of the world. In Christ, you can manifest and express the wisdom of God. There's a guy in the Bible named King Solomon. And uh, I'll tell you what, man, talking about a guy who really had it all. He actually inherits the kingdom from his father, David. He's got wealth. He's got opportunity. And God comes to him when he's in Gibeon. And the Lord appeared to Solomon, and he said, Listen, ask me what you wish from me to give to you. Anything you want, ask me. I mean, what would you ask for? Listen, if God said, ask me what you want, what would you want? What would it, is it that, man, it's that car that I see when I drive to work. What is it that you would want? What is it? Are you thinking about it? Because Solomon had obviously thought about it. And Solomon, he saw that God had needed to fulfill the promise and that there was going to be a son of David that is going to reign. And he saw the opportunity and the position he's in. You know what Solomon asked for? The world would say, this is utterly stupid. But Solomon asked for wisdom. This is what he said. So he said, So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. And God was so very pleased that we've got a man who sought the wisdom of God, that he said, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked for riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. And God gave him wisdom. It showed up in his social decisions, economic decisions, military decisions. I mean, this guy was wisdom personified. People were traveling all over, even from Africa, to come and hear and see the wisdom of Solomon. But Solomon encountered what we could call the big three idols of destruction. You see, wisdom available does not mean wisdom applied. And the big three idols of destruction are sex, money, and power. Unbiblical sex, this drive for power and more influence, and money. The idea that you trust your resources, not trusting in God. And in Solomon's case, he bit off on all three. You come to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and it's actually hard to read them. Because here's Solomon, who's been given all this great wisdom, had it going for him. When you get to 1 Kings 11, it says this, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. They, and they turned his heart away. You see, these idols, unbiblical sex, power, money, they will turn your heart away from God and his wisdom. And for Solomon, I mean, it eroded his relationship with God, and it eventually destroyed his heart, and it brought it to a place that one day his kingdom would literally shredded into. That's because wisdom of God, even though it's available, doesn't mean that it is applied. 
It's interesting. I'm of the persuasion that God actually, at the end of Solomon's life, brought Solomon's life brought him to a place of great brokenness and humility. And I believe that's when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes is really a book that's all about how the vanity of life, living apart from God, trusting him, knowing him, and loving him. At the very end of Ecclesiastes, his final two sentences that he wrote are this. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God, that I would give reverencing and respecting God, and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. You see, God will make it known what we did with him and his wisdom. And whether him, whether he and his wisdom were manifested in our lives. You see, the wisdom that we follow will be shown by the way that we live. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of scripture. How you've put before us so clearly the wisdom of the world and its effect. And the wisdom that comes from you that is above. And Father, for someone who's come here today who's never truly trusted in your son. Would they just pray with me now and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin and the wisdom of this world, and I turn to Jesus for life, for forgiveness, and I desperately need your wisdom. And for the rest of us, Lord, who do know your Son and are trusting in him, God, help us to experience the wisdom that comes from you, to grow in it, to manifest it, to value and to cherish it, to spread it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.